So to tonight's first guest, she is a psychotherapist who has worked for over 20 years with groups and individuals. She's not taking on any more clients, I've asked. She's the author of the graphic novel Couch Fiction, illustrated by Junko Gratt, and the very helpful How to Stay Sane. She's currently agony aunt at Red Magazine, but she's perhaps most proud of being Specsavers Regional Spec Wearer of the Year, <laughs> which I'm quite jealous of because I really quite like my new specs and I thought this might be the year that I got recognised, but she bumped me. Anyway, in tonight's session, I'm going to be taking that out on her and we're going to be dealing with parenting issues, which are the foundation of all great literature. Please welcome Philippa Perry. Hello. Hello. Thank you for doing this and being here. You're welcome. Here. Um, Philip has been struggling a little bit with this book. She's been quite tense about it, haven't you? Yeah, I've been really tense. And so she decided to read it for the first time to 400 people in a room that she's never met before. That's yes. what I thought, yeah. Well, I wonder what that says, but we'll touch on that later. Um, please begin by reading for this. Really? Yes. Straight, okay, straight, straight, straight in. I, well, I, I mean, you know, we'll talk more afterwards, but I'd okay. like you to, you know, go straight right. in there okay. with the reading. Okay, I hope I've got the right regional winning glasses on for so this. So resentful about the glasses. Yeah, I know you are. Okay. This is an excerpt from a book about the relationships we have with our children. It's about between parents and children, and I haven't found a title yet. So if you can think of one, uh, please come see me because I need one. Okay. I'm going to start reading now. And breathe, okay, good. Parents rarely look to themselves when they feel irritated with their children. In their minds, the child is just being annoying. Behavior that seems to irk parents the most is whining, whinging, clinging, and sobbing. Not the crying that occurs when kids fall over, but the plaintive grizzling they do when parents cannot think of a reason why their offspring might be sad or still be sad after the parent has made heroic efforts to distract or cheer them <laughs> up. My father used to angrily turn to my whimpering self and tell me to shut up or he'd give me something real to cry about. I wonder whether this irritation that parents feel is something to do with being shut off from what it felt like to them when they were infants and children and felt sad and defenseless. The annoyance with their children could be that they do not want to be taken back to the pain of re-experiencing old feelings of fragile vulnerability. So instead, they try to shut their children down when their behavior threatens to remind them. In addition to this, they may hear the whining or crying as criticism of their parenting skills because they have an unspoken expectation that children should be happy all the time. What to the child is but sadness or loneliness or wanting? can therefore be felt by a parent as being more about them as a parent than what their child is going through at that moment. And they don't like this reminder of their impotence. Bella is a 45-year-old senior manager in a large corporation 
and would describe herself as no-nonsense when it comes to feelings. She was brought up to not make a fuss, or in my language, to repress her feelings. She's married to Steve, a journalist, and they have three boys, 14, 12, and 8. They are a lively family with lots going on, plenty of weekend activities and socialising with extended family and friends. The atmosphere at home is one of cheerful busyness. Bella and Steve both have demanding jobs, and Juanita lives with them during the week as a childminder housekeeper and has been with the family since their oldest boy was five. Sounds ideal. What could possibly be wrong? But that's just the trouble. Bella has quite a low tolerance for anything not fitting in with this rosy picture. And when she came to see me, expressed particular irritation at her younger son's clinginess. She told me, Felix is really clingy. He's eight, but now he needs more attention than my other two boys put together when they were his age. I wonder whether I didn't bond with him properly as a baby or something but I think I did. I really don't know why he seems so insecure. He and I were talking about dreams, and he said he had a terrible dream where he was alone and he couldn't find anyone. I asked him if he had ever experienced that in real life, confident that he hadn't. So I was surprised when he said that he had. He said, I remember when visiting grandpa's, you left me alone in the car. And as he said it, I remembered this too. My dad lives in the middle of nowhere, and one time, when Felix was about two, he was asleep in the car when we arrived. So I got at the, the other boys inside and unpacked the car and put the shopping away, and then went back out to check on him. He had woken up and was crying. I was devastated how he'd remembered this, and I said, sorry. And we had a hug, and I told him, you couldn't have been alone in the car for more than five minutes, darling. So now I wonder why he had these feelings. How could one tiny incident like that, which happened when he was two, still be around for him when he was eight? I asked Bella if Felix had ever been left alone before or since in a strange place. And she said, no but he has been ill. When he was little, about 20 months old, he had such a severe septic throat that he had to be hospitalized. The antibiotics didn't work and he had to be put in a coma on a machine to help him breathe. During that week, he was alone sometimes then, but after he was taken out of the coma, Steve or I were always with him. Bella! I said, how awful for you that your son was so sick he had to be put in a coma. She replied, oh, it was fine. I mean, not very nice, but you, you get through these things. <laughs> I really felt when Bella said this that my concern was unwanted. I felt a bit pushed away. It was as though I was pressing a button she didn't want pressed. And in that moment, it felt to me as though she had been and was continuing to push her own feelings away about this. I was feeling shocked and moved myself 
imagining what it must have been like for the little boy to be so ill and what it must have been like to be in his parents. Bella told me, Steve said we might have lost him, but I couldn't go there. I wouldn't think that. It is completely normal to want to lock up, to repress our own difficult feelings. But when we do, we risk being insensitive to the difficult feelings of others and of our children. When she said what her husband thought, I felt another wave of sadness in myself and I told her, I feel really sad, Bella. And as I looked at her, I noticed that she too had tears in her eyes and I said, this could be why Felix did cling, because he had to cling on to life. And although consciously he could not have known you were not there when he was unconscious, it is possible that he knew it on another level, which is maybe why he has the dream of being alone. Whether or not this explanation had any truth to it, it resonated with Bella. And she could suddenly understand why Felix was clinging now, which made it immediately easier for her to tolerate and empathize with how he felt. Before, I always felt my other two aren't clingy, so why is Felix, she said. You know, in a sort of blaming way, like those two are all right, so why aren't you, as though it was his fault. I realize now that whatever he, or, or anyone for that matter, may be feeling, it isn't really a matter of fault as such. After we did this work, it was Bella who had a dream, a nightmare actually. She dreamt that a couple of her nieces and Felix went swimming in the sea and they got into difficulties. The girls were saved, but Felix drowned. Bella woke up with a start, tearful and upset, and went to check on Felix, who was asleep, safe and sound. The irony of this action struck her. It was usually Felix coming into their bedroom. The next day, it hit her that she could have lost Felix when he was small, something she had never been able to admit to herself before. And now it was she who felt clingy towards him. These days, Bella is not sure whether Felix is less clingy or it is that she has softened towards the clinginess or whether it is her who is reaching out towards him more. But in any case, she has noticed that the feelings of irritation towards him have subsided. And this is why acknowledging and validating feelings, our own and our children's, is important. I can't reiterate this enough. I have never come across a feeling felt by anyone which does not make sense once the context for it is found. So be it cleanliness, ghosts in the wardrobe, monsters under the bed, or just feeling sad. All feelings can make sense once we find their context. If the context is not immediately apparent, it does not mean that there isn't one.
Um, I feel I should have started a 50-minute clock at the beginning um, <laughs> <laughs> of this interview. Um, I think that, that, that question uh, or that point you make about context is very interesting and it makes me wonder why you decided to write a book about parenting now at this point in your life. Well, both my parents are dead now <laughs> and I don't think I could have written it when they were alive because it would have upset them quite a lot because this comes from a place of almost wanting to put my own, my own childhood right. And it comes from a place of... In, in what sense? Well, you know, if I had a feeling, I'd be told not to be silly. Wow. And so I lost contact with my instincts because I thought I was silly. So then I had to grow up twice, once adapting to who they wanted me to be, and then again to who I really was. Were you an only child? No, I had an elder sister who was okay. much better at, at adapting than I was. Okay, so she was the kind of held up as a model of good behavior. Yes, that's right. If you want to make your uh, children not get on with each other, compare them the whole time. <laughs> that will work. <laughs> and how's that working now? <laughs> no. We struggle. Um, so, so you felt that in order to write a book about, about parenting, which is a kind of progenitive forward-thinking action, you had to wait until um, your own parents had died because you didn't want them to be upset? I mean, was it that they would read stuff in the book that they didn't acknowledge? Well, I, didn't have, I needn't have worried, actually, because they never, when they were alive, read anything I wrote. <laughs> 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 oh, it looks awfully long, darling. Um, I also had to wait until my daughter grew up yeah. just to make sure that my parenting philosophy was sound. Has she given you that certificate yet? Has yes, she? I've got a certificate. <laughs> it's great, yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I was thinking is that it's parenting is, um, I mean, thinking back to the Ra Rachel Cost's memoir about motherhood, it's a very fraught area. It's a very tense area to enter, particularly dangerous area for a woman to enter, I think. Yeah. Um, wh why did you... Why did you decide to, to do it? Well, I've been teetering about doing it for a while, and I am scared of doing it, because David Beckham said in 2014, you can- Sentences you don't often hear at the literary <laughs> salon. David Beckham said in 2014, when uh, the, the Daily Mail was moaning at him because his daughter, aged three or something, was still sucking on a dummy, he said, Criticise me about anything, but not my parenting. Mm. We are incredibly sensitive about uh, our parenting. It's because it's so important and because so much is riding on it. And it's the thing we might have the most shame about. And so if you disturb that shame in someone... The shame of, of the way we were parented or the way we parented? Both. Okay. And if you disturb that shame in someone, they are liable to attack you. So I'm, you know, fully prepared. In fact, I've written a chapter, I don't know whether it's going to make the book or not, as to why you'll feel terribly ashamed in, re in reading this and why that doesn't matter. <laughs> well, that sounds like a chapter that needs to make it end and that people maybe, need to read. Maybe, maybe, we'll see. How much of the time that you spend with clients in therapy is spent dealing with the way that they were parented? That's a very good question. And it's another reason for writing the book, because an awful lot... Because our first two years of life are where we lay down our maps for life. And 
if we think... What do you mean by that? Do you mean, okay. like, are you talking neurologically? Are you talking, I mean, emotionally? It's, you know, it's a screaming orange in a wig, as Nancy Merkel God said. knows. God knows if I'm talking neurologically. Okay. I can't see into the brain. Okay. I probably am. I'm not sure. Okay. But what I mean is it gives you a map, is that if you feel secure, if you feel that if you need something, you will most of the time get it, mm. you grow up in a sort of trusting way, thinking that, other people aren't so bad and you're more likely to be friendly and mm -hmm. you're more likely not to be preoccupied with relationships or you know whether somebody hates you or not and people come to psychotherapy because they're miserable yes but we're usually miserable because we're not being able to soothe ourselves or we're not able to use other people to soothe us and we learn how to soothe ourselves and we learn how to be soothed in relationship with other people in the first two years of life. So yeah, childhood tends to come into it a lot. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I wrote a parenting book that was so good that all mm. psychotherapists went out of business and I could get <laughs> on with flower arranging or something. So it's not a parenting book in the sense that it's about, about, about nappies and bedtimes and how to get mm. your child into the right school. It's, a, it's, a, it's, no, really it's as much about self-parenting as it is about parenting. It is about self-parenting because in order to provide the environment for good mental health in your children, you have to have an eye on your own. I'm not saying you have to be completely sane because that, you know, I can't reach that height of perfection myself. But you have to have some sort of awareness of when you might not be sane. Mm. So you don't unknowingly thrust it onto the child. And how did you and Grayson manage that together? I'm particularly interested in thinking about gender roles in your, in your parenting relationship. How, how did you decide on, on that? Because you're making a choice. I think um, how we decided to parent was we looked at how we were parented ourselves and anything we didn't think was too clever, we took out, but I wanted to keep what worked. I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I <laughs> right. wanted to keep what worked. And also, we read every single parenting book uh, from, you know, pop psychology to, uh, you know... Is this while you were pregnant that you were Yeah, uh, and child development manuals of, you know, very weighty tomes as well. Read the lot and gathered what seemed to fit for us. And uh, you asked me about gender roles and things, yeah. because I'm married to a transvestite. You might not know that, but I am. And um, I think what's really important is that we don't lie to children and we don't have secrets with children and we don't fob them off. Because for those first two years of life, they learn to read you without language and they're pretty good at reading you. And then language comes in and then if you tell them something that doesn't sit right with them because they've learned to read you, they are more likely to doubt themselves than you. And so you are disturbing their mental health when you lie to them. So just because you're telling them something unusual, such as daddy likes to wear a dress sometimes, doesn't mean to say it's going to um, knock them for six. They just accept it because mm. what happens in your own family when you're growing up, that is normal. Yeah. 
So if you're beaten over the head regularly, that is normal. If your dad wears a dress, that is normal. So it doesn't actually phase you that much. Okay. In fact, when my husband won the Turner Prize, um, my daughter was on her way to school one day, and um, a journalist tailed her into the school. She was 10 years old, she was fairly independent, and she walked there on her own. And he said to her, what's it like having a transvestite for a dad? Now, the ethics of accosting a 10-year-old girl in the street, dubious. However, my daughter turned to him and said, I've never had any other sort of dad, so I can't really answer that question. <laughs> that's, that's a parenting when right there. That is, you're like, yes, <laughs> getting it right. Get, she's not going to be in therapy. Maybe she has only for a little while. It's okay. It's fine. If your kids can pay for their own therapy, you're doing really well. <laughs> <laughs> I remember explaining to my parents when, when I first went into therapy and... and what it was because they'd never they'd never heard heard yeah. of it um and um and they said so what do you talk about and i said well mainly you <laughs> <laughs> and they were actually quite pleased <laughs> it's like, oh he hasn't forgotten us you know um the joys have uh, been parented by narcissists <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean um so <laughs> Um, when, you, when, you, when you were talking about Bella, you, you, you expressed, you'd expressed a feeling to her. You said, I feel sad. Yeah. Is that something that you often do with clients? You express your own feelings? Especially if it's a feeling that they have but are sitting on. Right. So um, there's a, quite a lot of chat. It's booming a bit, this. That's fine. There we go. There's quite... Ooh, too ooh. far away. There's quite a lot of chat amongst us psychotherapists about how much to share. And share of yourself with your client. Share of yourself with your client. Yeah. And I think it's a good idea to share when it might help the client move on and not such a good idea when you're sharing just for your own benefit. Yeah. So I, sh I usually share feelings that I can't really make sense of. So if I'm talking to someone and I suddenly have a knot in my stomach and it wasn't there before, I might mm. say, this might be to do with just me or it might be something that's happening between us. I don't know, but I'll share it anyway. I've got a knot in my stomach. And they might say, oh, so have I. You know, because you might be feeling their knot or they mm. might be saying, mm, I don't know what you had for lunch. Mm. It doesn't matter if it doesn't land. Yeah. You know, you've, you make yourself vulnerable um, in that situation so that your client feels safer to make themselves vulnerable too. Okay. And in terms of thinking about how you practice and where you practice, I mean, your main, is your main practice still at home? I don't see private clients anymore. Okay. I only work for an organisation. You're, you're well out of it. Sure. I only work for an organisation now called Talk for Health, and I run groups for them. Okay. Um, but what was it like when you did see clients at home? Was that, was it, was it? easy difficult was it did you just did you have a clear space clear hours i had clear space clear hours and i only used a dedicated room in the house was um, it different from the rest of your house yes how i had a beige carpet <laughs> <laughs> that's very reassuring in a therapist yeah. the rest of the house was all kind of bright colors there was a beige carpet white walls yeah okay. it was kind of like you know wasn't all about me that room okay 
I'm remembering the first room in, in which I had therapy um, when I was at, at university, and my therapist, um, about whom I knew very little actually until the very last session, where she said, "You can, you can ask me a few things about myself if you want now." But I saw her for a couple of years, and in, in that time, she had some plants on the windowsill. But the one that she had closest to where the client would sit was what's called a sensitive plant. So if you reached out and touched it, it curled up and moved away from you. <laughs> which I always thought was particularly sadistic. And I asked her in the last session why she had that. And she said, well, you know, it works. Um, but, um, you've, got to, you've got to survive however you can, you know, yeah. whatever works. Um, if there was an author or a fictional character that you could have, because mm -hmm. I know you are a great reader, um, if there was an author or a fictional character that you could have on your couch, who do you think it might be? Well, I was thinking... He did warn me he was going to ask me I did me give this. her a heads up on it, because I thought right. it wasn't fair to ambush her. Okay. And, you know, I could say my favourite author, E.F. Benson. Oh, or lots of issues there. Oh, but... Closet no, case, yeah, Matt yeah. and Lucia. No, I, th I thought... I thought Not so closet. Not so closet, really, no. His whole family were gay. Um, Church of England. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've thought about this. I'm not going to put him on the couch, because... Um, I have been privileged to be a psychotherapist to people who have been well-known mm -hmm. and people who have been not so well-known. And actually, there's no difference. The only difference is, if somebody's well-known, we ha I have something which is called pre-transference, that's, that's sort of ideas and fantasies about them. About who that person is. is. Before they get there. And that just gets in the way. And what I found is that when you sort of peel back the layers of anyone, everyone is fascinating. I have never worked with anyone who hasn't blown me away with how fascinating and interesting they are. And sometimes they don't know it, and I have to take that out and show it to them. Sometimes they think the bit that is fascinating isn't is that not, is not yeah, fascinating, yeah. but the other bit is beautiful. And so if I think, okay, what famous writer do I want? I think I don't want a famous writer because I'll have all this kind of like um, idealized transference onto them and I wouldn't be a very good therapist for them. <laughs> so no. So you're gonna be cruising writing groups in North London looking for people with issues. No, I'm not, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take questions for Philippa very quickly. Um, Sylvia, of course, your hand is up. There you go. I should say that Sylvia has asked like, the first question at every salon for about the last eight years, and I know literally nothing about her. There she is. The wonderful Sylvia. No, I don't. People are like, I'm like, I can't tell you. Everybody always asks me about you. We have to do a salon about you. But anyway, ask the question. Go on, come on. How easy is it for adults to, to shift stuff which might be set down very early in their lives? And I mean, is it, is it any harder for them to, to, to set aside something that happens when they're two than it is when they're 20, I guess, is what we're thinking about? Well, our brains are luckily plastic. They're not stone. That's a very posh way of saying plastic. I've never heard somebody say <laughs> plastic before. That is, that, is, that is the Swiss finishing school right there. It is, it is, it is. Plastic, anyway, apart from Louise Allen Jones. Our bra brains are plastic. <laughs> <laughs> and although they're more plastic, I can't 
<laughs> Although Go they're on. more plastic between naught and two and naught and five than they are between 28 and 35, they are still plastic then, and they are still plastic between 80 and 85. And what tends to happen, I mean, in my own therapy, what tends to happen is, if I, uh, you know, I had 20 years of therapy, I had relationships with really lovely, beautiful people, in, in including my own daughter and ongoing things that made me feel good about myself and the world. However, some big trauma comes along and I can revert to the oldest familiar grooves. But the thing is, when I do that now, I go, hello, I've fallen back in the hole again and I can get out. Mm. So you might think, well, she hasn't changed because she fell in the hole again, but at least I can get out now and at least I know what it looks like on the other side. So I'd say, yeah, you can change it. It's not necessarily easy, but you can change it, especially in relationship with really good people. Thank you, Philippa Perry. <laughs>